Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Power People podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Today, we're really honored to bring on our dear friend, Whitney Lauritsen. We're going to be talking about a pretty interesting subject today. We're talking about compassion fade, passion fade, compassion fatigue, basically this idea that we start off really gung-ho about something and it sort of fades over time. I know that for me, I began my plant-based journey feeling really inspired about healthy living. And these days I eat mac and cheese and I eat a lot of the newest, latest vegan ice creams, which are fantastic, Mm -hmm. by the way. And what originally drove me and kept me super motivated has faded. And so I see it within myself. Michelle and I were talking about it. She sees it within herself too. So we want to dive deeper into why that is and what exactly compassion fatigue and compassion fade are. So without further ado, we're going to bring on Whitney. Before we jump in, we're really excited to give a shout out to today's episode sponsors, which are Better Than Bouillon and Vistro. Better Than Bouillon is a concentrated paste that can be used to boost the flavor of plant-based dishes and create really satisfying vegan versions of your favorite meals. We most often think of bouillon used in soups, of course, which Tony and I do often and love. And that's the main reason that I always have bouillon stocked in my pantry and have for the past like decade. But it can also have a lot of really cool, unique uses that you may not have thought of before. You, it, the better than bouillon, unlike like bouillon cubes, it's actually a paste. And so, of course, you can mix it into water and heat it up on a stove and turn it into a broth. But you could also mix that paste into a sauce or a dressing, or you can use it as a marinade for tofu, like create some tofu steaks or cauliflower steaks, other plant-based meats. You can use it to season them. I wonder if you could, you probably add it into seitan or use it to season seitan. There's a lot of really creative ideas. I also flavor my grains with it. So if I'm making Spanish rice or even Brown, regular brown rice, just giving it a little more complex flavor is something that makes it extra special. And they have so many different flavors that are all vegan, like the no beef, the no chicken, the regular seasoned vegetable, but they also have roasted garlic, sauteed onion, and even mushroom, which Michelle and I like in flavor, even though we're not big mushroom fans, it's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, they're roasted garlic I discovered more recently, and it is so, so good as well. So if you haven't tried that one, definitely keep an eye out for the roasted garlic, or you can find it on their website. The other really cool thing about Better Than Bouillon, I exclusively use bouillon. I don't remember the last time that I bought a container of soup broth or a can of soup broth, partially because there's just so much single-use packaging waste. We talk about it all the time, how those packages that package soup or even shelf-stable milk aren't recyclable. But even with that, if you open one up, use some of it for a recipe, pop it in the fridge. I can't tell you how many times I've had a box of soup broth go bad on me or just like I don't know. I don't remember when I opened it. So I end up having to pour it out and throw half the soup away that I paid for plus then throw away the packaging. So using bouillon is a great way to reduce waste, reduce space taken up in your kitchen and your pantry, and prevent food waste. Love, love, love you better than bouillon. Thank you for making my life easier and easier it be easier to be sustainable. Check them out at betterthanbouillon.com. Next up, we have Vistro, which is a vegan meal delivery service. It 
Vistro makes these delicious, fully plant-based, it's actually an all-vegan company, pre-prepared home-cooked meals that are frozen and then delivered to your doorstep. And all you need to do is either pop them in the microwave or pop them in the oven and warm them up and you've got an incredible meal. Their meals are really creative. They're flavorful. They have a whole variety. I think they have over a hundred um over a hundred different dishes to choose from, if I can remember correctly. And I've tried a bunch of them. I've tried Vistro over many years now. Um, yeah, they have a red curry with tofu, country fried chicken, enchiladas, quesadillas. So you can actually go in and pick the meals that you'd love to be included in your package. And this is for the person who is busy, 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 or tired, 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 (laughs) or sick, or just wants to eat healthy. You'll have them in the freezer ready to go. You know you're covered with a meal that you can just heat and eat, but it's it's fresh, it's thoughtfully put together, and it is really delicious. Yeah, Michelle mentioned that it's it's for the person who's sick or it's for the person who has whatever reason, but I actually love sharing food with people. Vistro makes it easier to take care of our friends, even if they live far, and make sure they're well-fed. So uh, vistro.com, we will put that in the show notes. Yeah, and if nothing else, you should just head there and look at what they've got a la carte because it might give you some meal ideas to make on your own as well. I'm going to read some of these off because they look, well, they sound so good. Taco bowl, farro ragu. I, ragu. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but farro is an awesome grain that you might consider using in your in your meal. They have crab cakes, fajitas, quinoa risotto. They even have like simple meals that kids would love, like chicken nuggets and a plant-based pepperoni pizza, baked mac and cheese. So really something for the whole family. And I definitely encourage checking them out. Hi, Whitney. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so excited. Michelle and I have both known Whitney for quite some time. I met Whitney at the Berkeley Vegan Earth Day in 2011 or so. Wow. And so it's been a while, but more recently we've become really good friends and I'm so excited to know her and to especially have her on the podcast. And Michelle, how how do you know Whitney? Whitney, you and I started creating YouTube videos around the same time. Did you start in, two th- was it 2009, 2008? Well, it depends on what, what you mean by begin. Because <laughs> I, I, previous to the Eco Vegan Gal channel, I had another channel, I think that I started in 2007. And I think I opened the Eco Vegan Gal account in 2008, but started the ball rolling mostly in 2009. Yeah. And at that time, there were very few content creators in the vegan yeah. space on YouTube. So I can't I remember, remember exactly. your cha- your channel like really stuck out. Like I, I remember almost like the visuals, I think of you either like <laughs> sitting cross-legged on the floor or like in front of a bookshelf at a desk or something. Is, is this right? Or am I making, is this like all fuzzy memories? Yeah, it's kind of crazy because when I started my YouTube channel, I was just at the end of college. So I've done videos in my parents' house when I moved back home in my my little apartment that I moved into with Dan before we got married and now in the house that I live in. So it's been through a lot of iterations and the channel used to be called Vegan Break at the beginning and now it's World of Vegan. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the YouTube space has changed. <laughs> I can't remember when I first discovered your content, but we would 
both sort of cover similar things like cool vegan things, events, interviews with the same people. I actually just listened to an interview where you were talking about Dave Middlesworth from B-Dog. And I was like, oh, I filmed a video with him too. I miss him. (laughs) So I think was the first time that we met at Vita Vegan Con in Portland. I think it may have been. I wish that event still existed. That was so cool. It was a vegan blogger conference that happened. And your friend was there and we did that video. What I was actually curious whatever happened to her. I have no idea. Sarah who we yeah. had connected somehow through the internet. And my first time meeting her in person was at that event too, but we roomed together. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a total flashback. <laughs> I just want to give a, a shout out to old school YouTube YouTubers like Whitney and Michelle who <laughs> recorded with a camcorder. My favorite oh, yeah. videos of mm-hmm. Michelle are her going and running back from the camera to go sit in her chair in front of the camera. (laughs) And uh, they're so good. She's since taken them down, unfortunately, for the world. But they are so good. (laughs) One night, Tony was like, Michelle, I just binge watched all your really old first videos. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, the thought of someone watching them. Whenever I post anything, even now, I just I, I post it, I let it go, and I just pretend no one watches it. And when I find out people <laughs> are watching, like I hear from people, I just, ah! <laughs> I know. So I and and it's, them. it's funny we're bringing this up because my sister is actually coming to visit me in LA for the first time since 2009, I guess it was, wow. when I started making videos. So some of my first videos were from the last time she visited. And we went and I had planned out all of these restaurants we were going to go to and review. And when I go back and watch those old videos, it's so fascinating because I was really uncomfortable on camera, but simultaneously comfortable. Like, I, I don't know if you remember that feeling where like, obviously you had enough confidence to do it, but it was still awkward because you weren't in the flow of it. And it's so interesting. Like when you've been doing something for a long time, I think it looks weird to us now because we've grown so much and we've practiced so much. But going back to the very beginning, we were so new at it. So of course, we are very different than we are today. And I'm so grateful I have those. I still cringe, especially the David Middlesworth video you mentioned. First of all, I had like, I didn't know how to use my mic. So the sound is awful. And like mm-hmm. my outfit I thought was awful. Like there's so much about it that makes me cringe. But I'm really glad I have that video of him. Because for those that don't know, he passed away. And it's such a sweet memory. And also to look back on what V-Dog was as a company and from for any of us that have been doing this for a while to see like how much brands have evolved over time. And we got to capture that on YouTube. And now we can look back. It's like a little time capsule. It's also a testament to how continuing to do something, even if it's a little at a time for a long period of time, can really grow your skills if you stick with it. Both of you say that you were awkward at some point, which I never thought. But uh, now I imagine people watch you and they say, oh, they're such naturals. They're, they're just naturally charismatic, but people don't realize all of the hours and agony that have been poured into your YouTube pages or podcasts or social media platforms before you got to where you were or b- where you are now. 
It's interesting. Yeah. I feel like this might tie into the topic that we're talking about today a bit because it truly is something that in the beginning, like my heart would be racing. I was nervous. I felt so awkward. And I'm petrified of public speaking, which is why I did videos so people weren't watching me while I was filming. <laughs> um, I could be alone in my room. But those feelings over time fade. You know, <laughs> passion fades, compassion fades, nerves fade. If we do anything long enough, it just becomes so normalized that now no part of me gets anxious if I'm going to flip a camera around on myself and, and talk about whatever. It's very interesting. Whitney, thank you for coming on and talking to us about this. But before we dive in to passion fade and compassion fade, I just would love for you to tell the audience who you are and where you are. <laughs> I have to share what I'm doing behind the scenes because I'm just amused by it. Just to kind of go off of what Mich Michelle just said. I could tell that you're about to ask me to introduce myself. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to pull up my bio because otherwise <laughs> I'm just going to feel like I'm stumbling through this. And it's so funny, right? Because I've introduced myself countless times, but I still get nervous. And I I'm also very type A and super organized. So I have everything like set aside and like to have notes and outlines. And and that's that's like a little inside look into who I am. I, I we live need in Los an elevator Angeles. pitch fade. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the one For thing sure. that never comes. It's never <laughs> becomes easy to get an elevator pitch. <laughs> no, but you know, something that I learned on TikTok today that I believe I would like to try is when you introduce yourself to say your full name, because mm -hmm. this woman on TikTok was saying that the average person, when they introduce themselves, just says, hi, I'm Whitney. But somebody that's typically very polished and like takes themselves seriously will say, hi, I'm Whitney Lauritsen. And it sounds like very official. And it immediately gives a couple things. One, it makes you look professional. And two, it actually helps people remember who you are because they, you, they have two anchors of your name. And many of us know the experience of hearing someone's name and then immediately forgetting it. <laughs> so <Yep. laughs> if you say, I'm Whitney Lauritsen, they might forget my last name, but for some reason that tricks them into remembering my first name, which I thought was kind of cool. And that actually ties into part of where I'm at now. Many people know me as eco-vegan gal, but I want to be known as Whitney Lauritsen. And I don't mind people referencing my work with eco-vegan gal, but I, did, I got really frustrated when people would refer to me as eco-vegan gal. You know, <laughs> like the, it just felt like weird. I don't know if either of you felt that way, like with, or, or currently, I suppose, since, but you know, we all still kind of use that. That's funny because I'm referred to as Michelle, World of Vegan, plant based on a budget, everything but my actual name, which is Tony Okamoto. <laughs> wow. And that actually reminds me too of uh, just another quick story is my podcast co-host is Jason Robel. And when we were dating uh, many years ago, some people would refer to me as Jason's girlfriend. And I hated that. I was like, I'm Whitney. I'm not Jason's girlfriend. I mean, I am his girlfriend, but I don't want to be introduced that way. And I think all of that kind of shaped me in, in wanting to stand up. And then I now work with Jason uh, and have been for the last few years. So I suppose people might call me Jason's podcast <laughs> 
co-host. I don't know. But um, yeah, I live in Los Angeles to answer your question, Michelle. And I do have the podcast. It's a huge part of my work now. I'm also really passionate about social media. So I do advising and consulting. And my newer endeavor uh, kind of came out of my work with Wellevator, the company I have with Jason, is well-being coaching. I'm very passionate about mental health and emotional well-being and just kind of that whole look at somebody's life, a holistic look at someone's life specifically, and, and what we can do to improve how they feel about their body, their minds, the planet. That's always been at the core of my work with Eco Vegan Gal, but I was so focused on the food side of things for so long. I didn't even realize how important it was for me to examine every part of life. And so that's more what I'm focused on these days. Let's go back a little further. When did you start learning about plant-based living? Well, my origin story uh, is mostly related to a crush I had on a boy for many years. I met him in 2000. Yeah, 2000. It was, it was actually almost exactly 21 years ago. It was in July 2000. I met this kid who had been vegetarian since birth. And, he, and then over the course of the years that we knew each other, he went vegan. And I didn't really know anyone else until I got to college that was a vegan. So I don't think I understood what that definition was. And he played such a big role in that. And I wanted to impress him. So I tried out the vegan diet myself as a way to like seem cool to him. <laughs> but as a result of that, and because I'm type A, I suppose, I did a ton of research in order to figure out what to eat and how to live as a vegetarian first and then a vegan later on. And it just resonated with me on such a deep level that it was no longer about him. It became about all of the incredible benefits of that lifestyle. That is so refreshing to hear an origin story that's different from, I feel like everyone's oh, either, I watched a documentary, I learned about the health impacts, I love animals. Watched Earthlings. I watched Earthlings. Like there's a few things we hear all the time, but I love that you did that for a crush. That's so sweet. Have you gone back and told said crush that this all oh, happened yeah. down? Yeah, I have. I mean, <laughs> we have a complicated relationship we're not currently in each other's lives, but we had been up until a few years ago. So yeah, he he knows. And I've, I've talked about it publicly. I'm not shy about it. And actually, Earthlings did have a role in my story. This is kind of cool. When I was finishing college, my first internship was for a woman who went to school with Sean Monson. They knew each other just from wow. film school. And I got to go to one of the early screenings of Earthlings. And during that screening was the day I decided to never wear leather again. Because at that point, I was just eating a plant-based diet. I wasn't fully vegan because I I guess I didn't know better. I didn't understand it. And I wasn't quite ready. And seeing the scenes in that documentary, like it did for many people, just completely shifted things. And it was really neat. Like I have this visceral memory of being in that small room with people when I had just moved to Los Angeles. Wow. And actually that same event where I did that interview with David Middlesworth, Michelle, is where I interviewed Sean Monson, which is an equally half cringy, half like really cool video to have. 
That is awesome. We'll have to link those videos in the show show notes. And no. for those who don't know, Sean Monson, okay, or not. <laughs> no, it's you fine. We'll have you to can. do some internet sleuthing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What's so funny though, is earlier today, I was looking at really old Facebook like profile photos. And I saw this photo of a flyer that I created when I was in college hosting the Earthlings documentary in a small little room with a few college students. And I ho- I, I organized the screening before I had watched the film. So I didn't know how extremely intense and emotionally painful it was going to be for everyone in the room. Half the people who came left, <laughs> the other half were vegetarian or vegan that night, like and onward. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful film. But Anyway, I think it's really refreshing that you have a cool different story. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. While we're talking about that, I want to go into why we brought you on the show. Michelle suggested immediately after she listened to your episode on This Might Get Uncomfortable, which is the name of Whitney's podcast for those who don't know. She listened to your episode about compassion fades and was really inspired and intrigued by the concept. And so I've since listened and feel similarly to Michelle. And we want to dive into kind of what happens when you're in the position, like you just watched Earthlings and you feel all the feelings and you go out into the world and it doesn't even have to be just with compassion. Maybe you watched What the Health and you're so inspired to eat healthy, plant-based reclaim your health, uh, reverse your type 2 diabetes, and then days go by, weeks go by, years go by, and it all kind kind of fades. Life is challenging and it throws all these obstacles your way. And then what? It just fades. So I, I want to talk to you about that. Michelle wants to talk to you about that too. Uh, can you talk a little bit about exactly what Compassion Fade is? Yeah, so there's there's actually two types along the same line. There's compassion fatigue and compassion fade. And I actually didn't realize that they were the same thing until recently. So compassion fade is when an individual's attitude towards helping people they don't know starts to fade away. And fatigue is when people that you do know you start to like lose compassion for that, or you get exhausted by having too much compassion for them. It's an interesting concept for me because it, it also shows like the different ways that we think about other human beings. So whether that's like the whole world, which I think it's a little bit easier for us to relate to that. It's like, oh, I, I have a ton of empathy. I have a ton of compassion, but there's just so many people suffering, so many animals suffering, and the, so many parts of the planet that are suffering. Like, I can't have this much compassion. It's so draining. And I think that we start to numb out. And then that other side of, of the compassion fatigue versus fate, as I just talked about, is like direct people in your life. You know, like you're just so fatigued by helping others that you can't do it. You have to pause. And um, I think both are super interesting and relatable, especially given what the world has gone through in the past year or so. But I think also, as you were addressing both of you, as vegans, I think we've been experiencing compassion, fader fatigue <laughs> throughout much of our vegan journey, because the more you learn to the point Michelle brought up about a, a movie like Earthlings, you see that and there's a tendency to numb or walk out. It's like, I can't watch this. I'm going to turn away 
or I'm going to watch this, but I'm going to numb myself because it's so intense. And actually, during that interview I did with Sean Monson, he brought up because I asked him about this. I was like, how were you able to watch all that footage over and over again to make this documentary? And he pointed out how part of that process was him putting out a representation of all the suffering. He he felt like it was so important and he needed to do the job because these animals are losing their lives or living lives of, of massive suffering that the least we can do as human beings is shed light on it in hopes of stopping it, even though we might not be able to protect that exact animal, which reminds me, another event I've seen Sean at in Los Angeles is the pig vigils. And I've been a few times and it's so heartbreaking to watch these animals come in on trucks. And typically in pig vigils, people stand on the sidelines right before they go in to be slaughtered and give them water and say goodbye to them and say that you love them. And it's heartbreaking, but you do it because these animals deserve love, even if it's only for that few minutes before the end of their life. And you do it as a way to energetically show to the world that that's not okay with us. And it can be really exhausting. So I, it, it's no wonder that some people's compassion starts to fade or fatigue. I think another interesting concept that that sort of ties into compassion fade is the just the vastness of issues. I know from working in a nonprofit space when we would do fundraising, we would talk about how if we wrote a fundraising letter about the millions of animals that are going to die this year for the meat industry can you please donate $5? It would get almost no response. But if we wrote a letter that was chronicling one animal who had had an injury and needs a surgery that's going to be extremely expensive to just help him live out his one animal life, floods of donations would come, come in. And so it is this trick our brain plays on us to both not allow us to feel for large numbers of individuals and large amounts of suffering, but to be able to connect with an individual suffering. And I think events like a pig vigil are so powerful in enabling a face, a face-to-face connection and an individual connection with animals that represent millions. Because until someone can connect with that animal, a lot of times they can't take action or really care about a cause that's bi- that's too big for our brains to understand. <laughs> totally. And that reminds me of how we will mourn one celebrity figure when they pass away, but completely forget how there are people dying around the world that we don't even pay attention to. And that was part of the conversation uh, on my show when we were talking about compassion fade. It's like there's sometimes when we are aware of how many people had died. At the time, there was like 500,000 people had died from COVID. And we recorded this episode in February, 2021. And I think that was just in the US. And that's a ton of people, right? But people typically will numb themselves to those numbers, but they're very aware when somebody close to them or somebody that they admire from afar, like a celebrity passes away. And that mentality is frustrating to me as a concept because 
why is one person's life or one animal's life more important than another? That's like one of the big questions here. But maybe our brains are set up to operate that way because it can't handle all of the intensity of thinking about how people and animals and and plants and all sorts of things are dying around us. If we paid attention to every single one, how would we get through the day? So we start to compartmentalize and we start to put our blinders on just to get by. But sometimes just thinking about that makes me upset. Yeah. One of the interesting things you brought up on your podcast was the the origin of compassion fade. And you had said that it was a concept introduced back in 1947 by Joseph Stalin. <laughs> and his quote, the death of one man is a tragedy. tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. And as I think with the three of us here on this podcast, all on a mission, I think, to reduce suffering in the world, really thinking about these things and how the human brain works in terms of having compassion for others and creating positive change in the world, it's really important to understand these things so that we can learn how to use our own brains, understand how other people's brains work, and sort of fight that tendency to care about an individual or the ones that we know at the, at the sacrifice of far more, far greater impact for others that we can't see or we can't like fully comprehend the numbers. I know like learning that this is how our the human brain works. I think differently when I see information about an individual suffering and then I see big numbers. Like if I'm going to make a donation, I really do think about that. I think, oh my gosh, my heart is really going out for this to this individual's dog who needs surgery and it's going to cost $30,000 for them to survive. My heart goes out to that dog and I want to give, but then I, I pull myself back and I think if I'm going to donate $100, I want it to have the greatest impact in reducing suffering. And so where can I put that that money where it will have it will reduce the most suffering, impact the most number of lives, um, and potentially even have a long-standing impact over time. And so I'm able to shift my decision making based on logic rather than just following just your heart's intuition, which is oftentimes the opposite of what makes the greatest impact. We're tapping into like the social obligation of it because I think sometimes we're afraid if we don't donate to something that is important to our friend or family that they're going to be upset with us. But if if there's something that's more important and we have limited resources, I think what you're talking about, Michelle, makes so much more sense. It just might not be socially acceptable, which is another reason it's hard. I encourage people who are interested in what Michelle is talking about to do a quick Google search on Peter Singer and effective altruism. It'll help you understand the concept more of wanting to help the most people. I heard a podcast episode with him on some really popular podcast. I can't remember what it was, but he was talking about how you could help one blind person get seeing eye dog companion and it would cost the same amount as helping 100 people get glasses and have sight and how we get really tied up in just what what this is about, the story of this one individual and the training of this dog to be their companion. When if we care about giving someone sight, we can give 100 people 
glasses and then they can see. And so I really liked hearing what he says, reading what he says. And he's, if you aren't familiar with him, he has some great things to say about animal welfare and veganism as well. I love that you brought up Peter Singer. Peter Singer is actually why I'm vegan. I picked up one of his books at a used bookstore ages ago. There's a website, thelifeyoucansave.org. And I also read an article, uh, a very, I think now it's just made the rounds essay that he had written. That's a similar story, but I'm just going to tell it anyways in in brief because I think it's so powerful. But if there's a child flailing about and drowning in a pond and you walk by and you see no one's around, And you're like, oh gosh, should I go save this child? Oh no, but I'm wearing new boots that I just bought that cost $100. I'm going to have to ruin these boots to go save the child in the river. Of course, we would all do it without a second thought. But what if you could donate $100 literally at any time right now? We could all do this to pretty much save a life or feed someone for a long time or really make an impact on someone's life. And do we do it? Like, no, because we don't have that same sense of urgency right in front of our eyes. And reading about effective altruism and also like opportunity cost and just philosophy of of all these things is extremely, it's been extremely powerful and helpful in my life. Um, It actually has guided the work that I've done for my entire life because I want to be as effective as possible. And I want to not just jump at what's in front of me and help what's in front of my eyes, but I want to use my life to make the greatest impact to help others. And to do that, you have to be more thoughtful about what's happening in the world and where you can use your gifts to help others. And this makes me wonder if he addresses this, because something I want to better understand, if there is a way to understand it, is recently has been coming up in relation to Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos, which is like, how they have so much money and they can make so much of a difference and still have tons of money. And people will often post things like if they just spend a fraction of what they had, they could solve world hunger. And I'm fascinated by that because I too wonder like, hmm, <laughs> if that's true, why don't they do that? And and then I think, well, if it was that easy, wouldn't they do that? And then I wonder, okay, well, if they're not doing that, does that mean that they're bad people? Or perhaps it's just not that simple. And I'm leaning a little bit more towards the latter because a lot of this sounds really easy, but money generally isn't that easy. (laughs) Like there's got to be some structure in which their money is tied up. And like, maybe it's greed. Maybe they aren't doing big things because taxes. Or maybe it's one of those like, this isn't a great... Colleen Patrick Goudreau would be great in this moment. What's a a vegan alternative to say the phrase, um, you can teach a a man to fish instead of giving him a fish? You know that? Mm, You can teach... A man to bake bread <laughs> instead of giving yeah. him a loaf of bread. Lo- <laughs> Great. Okay. Much better. <laughs> yeah. Like it's that idea of there's also this element of like, you can't just throw money at a problem and solve it, you know? And this has actually been a big issue in some countries where people have gone in and given them supplies, but it actually made it worse because people become dependent on donations and dependent on money or, or supplies that they're getting instead of finding a way to make it more sustainable. So my guess would be that's why incredibly rich people aren't solving world hunger in one fell swoop. 
But is, does this come up in any of his work or do you guys have a different yes. perspective on that? Okay, first of all, I'm just going to say, I think we can all just turn the mirror back on ourselves and have exactly the answer to why people aren't donating. Yes, These yes. people aren't donating all their money. What Peter Singer, I think he suggests that people donate, 50, people, I guess, I think living above the poverty line, donate like something 15%. like 50, 15, I thought it was 50. It's some percentage oh of their in- income and it's a pretty big percentage. And it's like, if you can afford to do this, you should be, because really... While it is somewhat convenient to think that throwing money at problems doesn't solve them, and sometimes it doesn't, there are problems that just having more money can really solve them. And there are organizations that X amount of money, you know it can have this impact and they simply don't have enough to get people what they need fast enough. So, and Peter Singer does, he, I mean, he does practical ethics and he has a lot of resources for if you're looking to figure out how to donate or how to make an impact, ways to do that that are very direct in terms of their impact and helping. I believe it's 10 to 15%, at least in the effective altruism movement, where a lot of people follow the work of Peter Singer. And that's if you are making enough money to cover your expenses at home. Uh, but if you work at some place that is paying you a lot of money, maybe you work in tech, then you would be donating a higher percentage. I think about my dad who thinks, why do we give all this money to the government? We can just donate to support what we think matters. And I think that is crazy because in theory, sure, but in reality, almost no one does. I think if I asked the people around me and even I looked at my own life, I don't donate anywhere near as much as I should be to be... I would argue differently, Michelle. I feel like you donate all of your time. Okay, all but, of your time, which is so extremely most people valuable. people aren't giving. We all feel some level of needing to protect, save, hoard what we have because who knows what's going to happen to our family member? Who knows what's going to happen in the future? There's just a lot of reasons why people tend not to give as much as they could. And I feel that sense too. Like at some point, this money will go to causes. But right now, I just want to be in a protected space where I can direct how that money's being used to help. But it's hard to count on donations to help. I also feel a little bit uncomfortable with this conversation, to be honest. I feel like having come from nothing, I have had little money my whole adult life. And until I would say the last five years, four years, I was under the poverty line. And so the shame and guilt that's put on people, especially in the vegan space, to donate their time and their money, especially if they don't have any to give, it just doesn't sit well with me. Like this conversation of what we should be giving I don't know how it's, I feel about it's it. It's tough and it's overwhelming too. I mean, that's that's often how I feel. I, I feel a little bit of of what you're you're sharing, Tony, at least from my life experience of just wanting to do more than I feel like I actually can and then feeling mm-hmm. some shame that I'm not. But also the moments where I'll have, let's say, like a spare five dollars and I'll think like, oh, okay, I want to donate this somewhere. I honestly don't know where to begin. And I see that Peter Singer has a website, thelifeyoucansave.org for the best charities for effective giving. It's tough. I mean, just trying to decide where do you put that money and how much? And also, do you even can you even afford it truly? Because the thread through with this 
conversation is that money means something different to everyone. And for one person, donating $5 or $50 or $500 might be easy. But for another person, donating $5 is a stretch. And if, especially if you don't feel like it's going to make a difference to somebody else, but it really makes a difference to you and your life. Like, I think it's just complicated in that sense. And I certainly think it's important for us to take out the shame in charity because we're not all coming at it from the place, same place. There are so many places to put your money to say that you can only help people by in donating to charities when the alternative could be in your business that helps animals, in other businesses, investing in them so that they can help mass amounts of animals with Beyond Meat or Oatly or whatever business that does good in the world. It's just a tricky subject. But before we go on on this, I want to get back to where why we brought you on, with, which is Compassion Fade. And Something that Michelle mentioned a little while back that I wanted to elaborate on was understanding the people around you and why they may not feel as strongly about compassion and specifically about where you put your compassion and how you express it. I know that as vegans, a lot of people who are listening to our podcast, maybe they're not even fully vegan and they're just learning about this and they feel all of the intensity of their new lifestyle change. And maybe their family members are not supportive. Understanding where they're coming from and maybe that they're sheltering themselves from learning the information that is too horrific for them or just makes them really uncomfortable is is good in its it is good at, in itself too. Does that make any sense? Like understanding them is also really good and understanding that they just may have not opened up their heart and they may be feeling some fatigue about other places, maybe the pandemic or maybe racial justice issues. And that's why they aren't as concerned about animals. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I mean, I experience a lot of de- decision fatigue myself and I think overwhelm and burnout are so common these days. And it's no wonder there's just so much going on in the world. There's so much information to take in. There's so much happening with current events. If you watch the news, it's just like one thing after another. And then there's a lot of solutions being thrown out there. And, and again, just like donating, you know, is feels overwhelming to me trying to figure out what actions to take and which one to prioritize when there are so many challenges and so many sad things happening. And as compassionate people, you want to jump in and make a change. And there's only so much that you can do. If you read books on willpower, for example, it's such a finite resource and we we drain ourselves of it every day. So we may only have it within us to make a certain amount of decisions. And then at that point, our willpower is gone. And, and this is you know, one of the reasons that people tend to make worse decisions later on in the day is because they've just burnt themselves out with the stronger decision-making. And I think that happens, uh, to your point, Tony, in so many different ways. If you're focused on racism, maybe going vegan is, is just too much to do at the same time. And that's okay. And I think another part of your point is having compassion for other people in their timeline. 
because everybody is doing hopefully the best that they can. I mean, at the root of it, why would anybody do any less any less than the best that they can at that time? Like, I don't think anyone's like, I'm going to do the worst that I can today. You know, like <laughs> each day you have within you a certain amount of capacity based on what's going on in your life. And each day you might have a different version of your best based on your circumstances. So for someone to judge another person for what they're doing or not doing is really frustrating. I think that getting an understanding of what compassion fate is and recognizing it within my own life has given me a lot more understanding for the people around me, knowing that even I, who's committing my whole life to trying to make the biggest impact I can, there's a million things that I just have to turn a blind eye to, or I just can't take into my brain, or I can't take action on, or I just, it fades. I mean, I I read something, I want to take action, I'm all gung-ho, and the following week, I'm like, oh, I'm just, like, I can't even think about it right now, it's too much. And then it's sort of lost. And it's, while it might feel like a bummer, this this topic, I think it's a really important one and we can leave it with a really upbeat and empowering message is just learning that this is how we work and we only have the capacity for so much. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. It really pushes us to find the things that we care about, learn how to be strategic with our energy and our skills and our the things we care about, whether it's choosing healthful foods for ourselves and our families or making a change that's better for the environment, whatever it is that is has you here listening to this podcast today, it's something that moved you. And the point is not to let go of that initial adrenaline, dopamine-filled, really passionate hit you got when you learned some kind of information that moved you to want to make a change that's different from the rest of the world, hold on to that and figure out what you need to keep that fire lit and know that it will dull over time. But for different people, that could look different. It could be having conversations with other people who kind of get it, are on the same page. It could be watching different documentaries. It could be not watching any of those things because those drain you, but just kind of figuring out what practically you can do to make the biggest impact. So I think getting to know our brains, how they work, having compassion for those around us and understanding that this is just, these are the brains and bodies we're all, we're all living in and they protect us from having to be in a state of discomfort or witness things that are hard to see. And then navigating in the most delicate, kind, compassionate to ourselves and others way possible to make an impact. I also wanted to mention something about activism because I feel like this kind of ties in So when people in general get involved in something, they usually go hardcore into it and try a lot of different things. And for me, I tried everything when I went vegan. I started going to demonstrations. I volunteered at bake sales. I did everything, like all of the different types of activism. And maybe you don't call it activism. Maybe you call it volunteer work an animal sanctuary or passing out leaflets or or something like that. But whatever you're doing, make sure that you're trying as many things as possible and not feeling the pressure to stick with something that makes you uncomfortable and leaves you feeling burnt out and makes yes. you feeling like you're fatigued. For me, I am introverted. I I did not feel good at protests. I did not feel good passing out leaflets to a lot of different people and having a conversation with them or catching people off guard. That's just not my comfort zone. But being online 
and creating recipes and talking to my friends and family, I consider all of those activism and those things I think I can do for the rest of my life without feeling totally drained in the way that I was with demonstrations or something that kept me in person talking to people. So find what works for you. And the good side of this is is that if everybody was doing the same thing, there'd be a lot of gaps that needed to be filled. And, uh, you know, if you've, if you've participated in a team of any type, like everybody works together, but in their own unique ways. And so when, just because you're not going to those demonstrations, Tony, there's plenty of people that do enjoy doing that, but maybe not enough that are staying at home and doing the activism on- online, which is incredibly important as well. And all these little roles that naturally come together based on our, our strengths and our desires and our bandwidth. One of my big points that w- we make often on the podcast, Jason, my co-host and I, is that it all starts with awareness and, and self-awareness. And when you're aware of your b- bandwidth, you know, are you introverted or extroverted? Where do you get your energy from? What lights you up? What, where do you have the time? When do you have the, the time? What are your natural inclinations? All of these things, you can sit down and just start to notice them and reflect upon them. That's usually the very first step to making any sort of change. And then my big suggestion, whether, whether I'm talking about veganism or social media business, it always comes down to creating some sort of structure in your life. Michelle, when you were talking about feeling like you have, would have ideas, but then you wouldn't get to it and then it would feel lost. Like for me, and, and again, this is easy for me because I like being organized, but I categorize things. I write them down. I'll put them into a folder. I'll bookmark them, whatever my current system is. And I save them for later. Then I need to create some sort of a habit of going back at some point when I do have the bandwidth. And I, for me, I have certain pockets of the day where I have the most energy. So I will either put it on my calendar or a specific time to do on my to-do list and go and read something that I didn't have the bandwidth to finish reading or start reading a few days ago. If I have something that I've been wanting to do, maybe I just need to take the first step and plan it and then take the next baby step from there and know that it might take me a while. Right now, <laughs> I have a, a video, which I know Michelle and Tony can appreciate given that they struggle with finishing videos sometimes too. I have a video I've been working on for almost two years and it's so overwhelming to me. But recently, I sat down, I realized I had the strong desire to finish this project. And I I just said, okay, I'm going to put five minutes into this and see how I feel. And when that five minutes was over, I could decide if I wanted to stop or I wanted to do another five minutes. And that's me chipping away. However long it's going to take, I will finish it eventually. And the same thing is actually true with my yoga practice. I start off every single yoga class that I take, which is online at the moment, I can barely do five minutes. I'm like, I'm bored. I'm tired. I, I, I want to do something else. But I'll find that if I can just devote five minutes to practicing yoga, I tend to want to stay another five minutes. So sometimes I end up doing yoga for 20 minutes or 30 minutes when I only thought I was going to do five. And if you can set aside that time and create those little habits for yourself, you can be amazed at the results. As long as you're not pressuring yourself to do 30 and truly just say like, It's five minutes. And if that's all I do today, that's enough. I was just going to add to that. I feel like 
So many people who listen to the Plant Powered People podcast are very new to eating plant-based. And if all you have the energy for is making a vegan meal for yourself, kudos to you. Like, I feel like that is amazing in itself. I also love, I feel like after listening to you both speak, there could be something that's the opposite of compassion fade. There could be compassion growth. That could become a new term that people feel if we start doing the things that fuel us rather than drain us in terms of making an impact. If we start protecting our headspace from the things that really bum us out and feeling like we need to put ev- like be aware of every issue and instead just start tackling the one little thing at a time. If we surround ourselves by positive people who are encouraging us and uplifting us, if more people do this, even just take little steps and do small actions, we'll start to tackle problems and see progress and progress feels good. And if we're feeling good, we're not going to have compassion fade. And I think while all of us here understand what compassion fade and passion fade feels like, I also feel what compassion growth feels like. And it is, I don't feel like I want to stop this work. I am excited to get out of bed every day to try and make an impact in various ways because I've learned strategies to protect myself and my mental energy and my personal space to take action without feeling the overwhelm of the weight of the issues of the entire world. So hopefully, hopefully we can all find a way to step into compassion growth. I also wanted to say that it can look different with different causes. I'm specifically, I have been specifically talking about animal activism, and I feel really confident speaking about that online. It's something that I've lived for half of my life, and I'm really comfortable. But there are some issues that even though social media is the place I feel really comfortable. I just don't know enough about the issue, but I want to support. So I'll go to the demonstration because that's where I feel comfortable. So it doesn't have to be a one size fits all type of thing. Again, just keep trying what works for you and what what works for you regarding one interest or cause may not be the same for a different interest or cause. Well, thank you so much to both of you for having this conversation. I have a lot to think about (laughs) myself. Whitney, we are so appreciative of your time. Thanks for having me. I love having these conversations. I'm blessed to get to have both of you in my life offline. Well, technically it's online because we live in in different areas, but I'm, I'm really blessed to be able to connect with you so often. And it's an honor to be on this show. It's It was really excited to be invited on. Thank you so much, Whitney. And for all those listening, Whitney's show, This Might Get Uncomfortable, is one of my favorite podcasts. I absolutely adore it. They come out with episodes very frequently, and they are just packed with just thought-provoking content. And so I highly recommend you check them out and subscribe. We will include a link to that in the show notes. And then Whitney, where else can people find you online to connect? Well, I do want to say since we kind of ended this episode on a more uplifting note, this might get uncomfortable is called that because every episode might get uncomfortable. It it can trigger... (laughs) Me and Jason, our guests, uh, the listeners, we understand that it's very in-depth and And sometimes it's intense. 
So we created a second podcast that's much later, which I think is actually a nice compliment to your podcast. It's called This Hits the Spot. And it's 20 minutes, semi-bite size, not quite. Michelle, we were going for like your bite-sized vegan style when we awesome. conceptualized the, the show. But Jason and I are a little on the long-winded side and we get very excited. So our episodes so far have been about 20 minutes. And all we do is talk about plant-based wellness products and services that we've been trying, things that light us up and make us happy. It's a really happy show. So if this might get uncomfortable is not your thing, the new podcast, this might, the, this might, this hits the spot is what it's called, is also on our website. And you just have to sign up for our newsletter. It's like a private newsletter subscriber only show. But to answer your other question, Michelle, and actually to lead into that one, there's two places to find me. One is at the podcast hub, which is wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go there, it's very easy to track me down. But if you want to find me outside of Wellevator, you can go to my personal website, which is WhitneyLauritson.com. And it has my contact information, uh, my social media handles. One thing that brings me great joy is hearing from people that discovered me on a podcast or through my own podcast. And just reading your messages is is wonderful. I, I much prefer the private communication. So you might very well get a audio message back from me, which Tony actually inspired me to start doing last mm -hmm. year in 2020. Tony mm -hmm. started sending me audio messages. And I was like, what a great idea. I'm going to start doing that too. So thanks for that, Tony. Oh, that makes me so happy. They're so personal. Absolutely. Like it. It's it's nice to hear people's voice. And if you're listening to a podcast, you probably like somebody's voice. So <laughs> it makes perfect sense to get an audio message from them. And and the cool thing is that person might choose to send you back an audio message and you get to hear their voice. And that's like the best thing. All right. Well, thank you again for being on our show and for being an awesome person in general. Thanks, Whitney. <laughs> thank you. That was another fantastic episode. I'm really grateful to have Whitney on. She's obviously so knowledgeable. And what I appreciate about her is that she really researches the things she talks about. She is someone who pays attention to detail and cares about reading in between the lines. And so I am grateful she was here to share her knowledge with us. I love pushing my brain and thoughts in new directions and exploring topics a little more deeply. So this was fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. And it also motivates us all to take better care of ourselves, be kinder to others, and find little ways that feel good to us that we can't have the capacity to do to make the world a better place. So yeah, big thanks, Whitney. Another big thank you to the sponsors of this episode of the Plant Powered People podcast. We've got, of course, Better Than Bullion and Vistro. Better Than Bullion, again, is available in the soup aisle of grocery stores. You can check them out at betterthanbullion.com and Vistro for plant-based healthy meal delivery at vistro.com. And... As always, you can find all of the resources mentioned as well as some others that Whitney has sent over in our show notes at plantpoweredpodcast.com where you can also see all of our other episodes. Right now we are in season four. I can hardly believe it. We wow. have recorded so many episodes together over the years and we try and make all of our episodes evergreen. So they're all topics that 
make sense to listen to at any time, any year. So feel free to go back and binge them and stay tuned for the next episode. We, we release them every other week during the podcast season. So stay tuned. You can see the episodes at plantpoweredpodcast.com. And if you're enjoying the show, it would mean the world to us. If you'd like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we read all of them and they really, really do warm our hearts. And also it's, it's a really great way to support the show and help it reach more people. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye.